Our scripture reading today comes from Isaiah 45, 1-7. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the door of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is, that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob, and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides, besides me there is no God. I equip you, though, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord, who does all these things. Oh, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Lord. You may be seated. All right. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them to Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44. Those of you who might not know me, my name is Mark. I'm one of the elders here at Solo Church. We've been in Isaiah for um, almost a year now, I think. Um, and we're getting we're getting close. Uh, we've actually, uh, before, the, before we hit the summer, we're actually going to finish Isaiah, which is really exciting. Um, we're here in Isaiah 44. Bobby preached last week, and uh, he got through Isaiah 44, verse 23. So we're going to pick up at verse 24. And there's going to be some, some interesting concepts here that I think we, we really, really struggle to understand. Um, I, I remember uh, when I was younger, um, in my Cage Saved Calvinist period, I don't know if any of you have ever experienced that, um, I would go online and I would argue some of the things that we we're going to talk about this, this morning. Um, and so uh, I don't do that anymore. Um, not that I don't necessarily believe it, um, but it's just... It's not worth the time to argue it on an internet forum um, like I used to think. Um, so we're going to look at uh, the idea that God here, this is a big idea, uh, God is the primary actor in history, bringing about justice and righteousness for his people. God is the primary actor in history, bringing about justice and righteousness for his people. So let's work through chapter 44, the end of chapter 44. We're actually going to go through 48, um, and don't worry, I won't, I won't keep you too long this morning. Because um, there's a consistent theme across all of these. So let's start here in, in verse 24. Um, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by, by myself. And he's going to go on. He's talking about his uh, power in creation. He's talking about he, he frustrates the signs of liars. He makes fools of diviners. He turns wise men back. He makes their knowledge foolish. He is so far above and beyond all of us because he created all things. And so what's he going to do with this power? He says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. He says of the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. So here God, he's demonstrating or he's explaining his power, and he's saying, I'm going to take all this power and mobilize it to restore my people. 
Okay? So all of this power that I have, that I had in creation, I'm going to take it, I'm going to use it to restore my people. Then we get to 45. And this is really strange. Let me read you just the first phrase. It says, thus says the Lord to his anointed. Okay, let's stop right there. If you don't have your Bibles, that, that actually works well here. Because let's, let's stop right there and think about, don't, don't read the next phrase. If I said, thus says the Lord to his anointed, what would, what would you, who would you think I was talking about? Any ideas? Who would you think I was talking about? Isaiah? Maybe he was the, the prophet anointed of God, right? Who else might you think he's talking about? Is Israel, like as his people, his anointed people? Who else? David, the anointed king, like he, he is the one that was given the promise. He is the anointed one of Israel. And he has the Davidic covenant where the Messiah will come. Who else? Maybe that Messiah, right? The, the, the Messiah that's promised we're going to get into the suffering servant passages here pretty soon. But when we read this and we read, thus says the Lord to his anointed, we think Israel. We think Davidic line of kings. We think like the word anointed itself is that is that messianic term that he's talking about a Christ figure here. Okay, so make sure you understand that he is talking about a Christ or messianic figure. And what what does he say his name is? Messiah. Does that seem weird to anybody else? Like if you're reading through this and you don't understand um, what's going on in history, it might not seem that strange. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. But if you look at Israelite history, God has anointed his kings over his people. And it is Jews that are going to restore his people. It is Jews that the promises are given to. It is Jews that sit in the line of David. And all of a sudden, God comes along and says, I have an anointed, and his name is Cyrus, and he's a Persian. So here... Israel is going to be saved. Israel is going to be delivered by a non-Jew. Brueggemann says it this way. God's future for Israel is not to be enacted in the way the Jews either expected or preferred. They, they don't want some outsider to come in and save them. They want God to raise up somebody in the line of David. They want the Davidic king who will be the anointed one of Israel to come and deliver them from their oppressors. That's how it's supposed to work. And here God is saying, the anointed one right now is Cyrus, whose right hand I've grasped to subdue nations before him, to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. And he's going to talk about how he's going to um, give Cyrus the power to go out and subdue the nations. And Cyrus is going to be the one that's going to deliver the Israelites back to Jerusalem. And God's going to go through here. Um, and he's going to demonstrate, like, listen, I'm telling you this ahead of time so that you believe me, all right? And we're going to go, like, as, as you go through the next chapters, um, over and over, he's going to say things like, like, I said it ahead of time, that's why you should believe it. Can your idols tell you what's going to happen? Can your idols say what's going to come to pass? Can the Babylonian gods predict the future? There's an interesting passage, if, uh, if you're interested in history, there's uh, a passage in Josephus's uh, Antiquities where he's recording Cyrus's response to this. Um, so if, if we're to understand Josephus correctly, um, Cyrus reads this, and he understands, Cyrus understands that it was written about 140 years before Cyrus even came on the scene. And Cyrus looks at this and is just amazed at it. Like, 
He called me by my name. Sometimes when, you, when we think about um, this idea of foreknowledge, uh, we get into all of these, and, and this happened on the internet forums, we get into all of these like, um, uh, like what if you knew the future, but then since you knew it, you decided to do something different. Does that change? Like if, if I could go up and God has his book of everything that's going to happen, and I read the book of what's going to happen tomorrow, and I decide I'm not going to do it. Like what happens then? And all of these are just just silly little thought experiments. But Cyrus actually had the book delivered to him that said, here's what you're going to do. And he's so amazed by it that he says, I better do it. Like if you read Josephus' Antiquities, Cyrus reads it. He's like, how did he know my name 140 years ago and predict that this was going to happen? He must be God. So I better deliver the Israels back to their back to their dwelling place. Yahweh is the only one responsible. If we get to verse 7 here, I form light. This is what, what Elijah read for us this morning. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Yahweh is the only one who is ultimately responsible for what is. Okay? Now, that might seem kind of difficult. Uh, and, and in fact, if you read this, if you read this in some other translation, um, it, it even says, like, I, I make well-being and I create evil, or I, I create destruction. That idea of evil um, in the Hebrew word there isn't the idea of, like, like, wickedness. It's not the idea of, you know, rebellion against God. It's the idea of calamity and destruction. And here God is saying, I make well-being, I make shalom is what is the word there. And I also make calamity, destruction. And I will bring, and and it's interesting, he actually uses calamity and destruction in order to bring about his promised shalom. Okay? So he's going to set up Cyrus the Persian, who's going to go out and conquer all of these nations. Um, He's going to conquer Babylon um, without even firing a shot, basically. Like, they they have, uh, the the story that you read in Daniel is just amazing, the way that they came in um, and they conquered Babylon without any kind of, um, you know, battles or invading armies. They, they, they did it by, by cleverness and, and wit. Um, and he comes in, and, and he's, he's going to be uh, used by God to subdue nations so that Israel can be returned. Um, and this is important. The movement of nations here, at this time, what God is doing, all of it is for the sake of my servant Jacob. You see that in verse 4. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I will call you by your name. I name you though you do not know me. He's talking to Cyrus like, you don't even know me yet. I'm going to call you by your name. And everything you're going to do is on behalf of my people. The movement of nations at this time is for the sake of my servant Jacob. It's for Israel's sake. We get to verse 8, and there's this doxology. Um, Shower, O heavens, from above. Let the clouds rain down, what? Righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. When we read the word righteousness, we tend to think of, like, um, not sinning. Or, like, we stand righteous before God. God doesn't see us in our sin. But, But the word righteousness here is that idea of everything the way it's supposed to be. Everything restored to what is right. Everything restored to the way God created it. So when he's saying, rain down righteousness, let, let righteousness bear fruit, what he's calling out for is for God to restore everything to the way that it's supposed to be. Right? 
So God has this power as creator to name Cyrus 140 years in advance, to give him the power to subdue all nations, so that his people can be restored to their land, so that he can rain down righteousness and turn everything back to the way it's supposed to be. Right? That's a message of, of one through eight. Um, we get to nine, and here all of a sudden there's this, this sudden change in tone. So here's this, this promise of God where he's talking about his power, and he's predicting that Cyrus is going to come, and, and he's going to restore his people, and here's, here's hope and righteousness and salvation. And then all of a sudden, verse nine, suddenly, woe. Woe to, not quo, you know, woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making, or your work has no handle? So here Isaiah, or the, the author here, is either anticipating that Israel's not going to like this, or there was actual opposition to this. And you can imagine the Israelites reading this or hearing this and saying, we don't want some outsider to come in and save us. We don't like the way God is working here. We don't like what God has said. We want him to do it this way. And here he, he either anticipates it or he's responding to that complaint. He's saying, does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handle. Like you, Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? The baby doesn't ask the mom, what are you doing here? That doesn't happen. There, there was a, uh, one of those really frivolous lawsuits recently where a guy is suing his parents because they gave birth to him without his consent. Um, and, and they shouldn't have done that. And so he's going to sue them. Um, we understand that that's ludicrous, right? The baby, the child doesn't ask the mother, what are you doing here? The pot doesn't ask the clay, why are you making me this way? Right? We get some, if, if you're familiar with the scripture, we get this, this uh, Romans 9 in there um, where, where Paul is quoting this verse. Um, I remember growing up and um, in, the, in the churches we grew up in, we always had invitations at the end of the, the sermon. And we w- we'd always sing the, um, have thine own way, Lord, right? Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. And if nobody came up, then we'd do another verse and we'd keep going until... Until somebody came up to the altar. Um, but that idea, like, like you are the potter, I'm the clay, you do whatever you want. And Isaiah's going to rebuke them here. Does the clay say to him who forms it? Do you, do you really think you know better than God? You're like a clay pot telling the potter what to do. Israel appears to doubt God's plan to save using a Gentile Messiah. And, and that's understood, like we understand that. Yahweh's going to go on in this session. He's going to use a bunch of action verbs to establish that he is the powerful actor and they should not question him. Um, He says, ask of me things to come. Will you command me concerning my children? I made the earth. I created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens. I commanded their host. I stirred him up in righteousness. I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. Not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Right? God is the one who is in control. Yahweh uses these action verbs to establish that he is the powerful actor. All right, we get to 14 through 17 here. um, And God is going to say the wealth of the world is going to belong to Israel. And it talks about truly, verse verse 15, truly you are a God who hides yourself 
O God of Israel, the Savior. Um, and this is, this is kind of a weird phrase. You are a God who hides yourself. Because here, it seems like he's revealing himself to them, right? It, 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 it has a language of revelation. I'm, I'm, I'm making myself to know, known to you. Um, and here Isaiah is saying, you're the God who hides. You're the God who is hidden. Um, what he's trying to do, he's setting up this contrast where when you look at the idols that the people are worshiping, everything there is to an idol is right there on the surface. Okay? So you, you form the idol. It's made of wood. You look at it. That's everything there is to know about that idol. It's right there. It's right on the surface. There is nothing deeper underneath it. And here, Isaiah is saying, you are the hidden one. You are the one that has to reveal yourself in order for us to understand you. You are not this surface-level idol that we can just glance at and get a full understanding of. Like, we, we will never quite understand you. You are hidden to us until you reveal yourself. And Yahweh here is revealing himself to his people. Because he is hidden, he has to reveal himself. Then starting in verse 18, all the way through 47. Um, and I'm not going to go into detail here. Uh, but basically, God is repeatedly demonstrating his power contrasting himself to the gods of the surrounding nations, okay? So he goes over and over and over again. Um, he's like, assemble yourselves in verse 20. Come draw near together, you survivors of the nations. It's like, like come. It, it, there's this language of uh, the courtroom constantly. We've seen it over and over again where God calls them to, to the, the courtroom and is, is calling them to testify for themselves. Like, answer if you can. And he is going to answer, and he's going to um, he's going to demonstrate that there is no other God besides me. There is none besides me. Um, he says, verse 21, declare and present your case, right, in the courtroom. Come to the courtroom, declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Now, who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Like, who is the real powerful one? This is kind of a showdown between God and the idols, similar to Elijah with the prophets of Baal. Who is the one that can call down fire from heaven? And here God is saying, who is the one who not only knows the future, but is the one that is actively bringing it about? God is not just some amazing psychic that's predicting the future. He's announcing what he's going to do. He is the primary actor. Over and over again, all the way through, through chapter 47, God is going to compare himself to idols and false gods. And over and over again, he's going to say, um, I created everything. I have power. I, uh, I, I said what was going to come to pass before it happened. Um, and these idols are nothing before me. Okay? I'd encourage you to re read through it um, and, and see God uh, setting up this court case against the false gods. Then we get to 48. And God's going to demonstrate his sovereignty over all things by announcing what he would bring to pass. He says, Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord, confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. They call themselves after the holy city, stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. Okay, like I said, God is not just really good at predicting. God is announcing what he himself is going to bring to pass. Um, and this is, like, if, if you get into those uh, Internet forum debates, like there's um, one, of the, one of the big um, alternate theories of, 
uh, of God's foreknowledge is the idea of open theism, that God is just really good at counterfactual knowledge. That means that God is really good at predicting what people will do, right? Um, And because God is so wise and so knowledgeable and he has so much data available to him, he's like this supercomputer that can predict exactly what will happen. Um, And God here is saying, no, like I, they, the former things I declared, it went up from my mouth, I announced them, then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. I didn't just watch and observe and make a really, really good guess, like an amazing guess at what's going to happen. I did it. I'm the one that caused it to happen. All right. Verse 5, again, I declared them to you from old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you. Lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. Just in case you're going to say, hey, look, everything's turning back to the way it's supposed to be. These, these false gods must have accomplished something. He's like, no, I told you ahead of time I was going to do it. That's how you know your gods are not doing it. All right. He goes on now. Um, towards the end, he's, he's going to still hold Israel responsible. Um, And here's where it gets difficult. God is announcing what he is doing. God is announcing that he is the primary actor. And then all of a sudden, verse 18, he says, Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like the river, your righteousness like the waves of the sea, your offspring would have been like the sand, your descendants like its grain. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Okay. So the problem we run into is if God is the primary actor in history, if God is working to bring all this about, then nothing that happens is is my fault, right? Like, I can just fall back on sovereignty and say, well, you know, God wanted this to happen. That's why it happened. I can look at my own sin and say, well, you know, that's. That, that was God. God, that's what you wanted to do, right? Because you are the one that brings everything to pass. And here he's going to say, you are responsible. If you had only obeyed me, then here's what could have happened, right? God is not only a sovereign God, he also holds his people responsible. And so that's where, um, in my mind, um, philosophical compatibilism comes into play. And if you've never studied philosophical compatibilism, basically it's saying um, the future is determined, but man also has free will. And man is still responsible for his decisions. Okay? So we put those two things together and our, we can't wrap our minds around them. And so we live with that tension that God has determined the future because he, he is all-knowing, he is sovereign, he is the primary actor in history bringing about what's going to happen. And he also holds us responsible for our free choices. I don't, if, if you understand that, let's sit down and talk because I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Um, I don't fully comprehend that. And it would probably be a mistake for me to think that I could. Um, the point of God being God is that he is above us. And if we could understand everything about him, then guess what that would make us? It would make us equal with God. Isn't that what Adam and Eve wanted in the first place? They wanted knowledge. This is what Satan promised them. You'll have knowledge like God does. And so they took and they ate the fruit. And so often we come to this and it's like there's these two competing things and and I can't rationalize them. So I'm going to come up with all these theories to try to, you know, emphasize one over the other or try to, you know, make them fit together. And God just says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are above your ways. You're not quite going to put them together. God demonstrates his sovereignty by announcing what he would bring to pass. 
And in the same breath, he holds Israel responsible for departing from him. Those two things are both true. All right, that's the end of our passage. Verse 22 ends it. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Um, there, there is this, um, this divine warning here from Isaiah. Like Israel is, has been told that they're going to go back to their, their land. They're going to be restored. And all of a sudden, here's this warning. By the way, don't forget, there's no peace for the wicked. We, we, are, we are looking at Shalom being restored here with Cyrus in the near future. But don't forget. There's no shalom for the wicked, for those who rebel against God. All right, what, what do we want to get out of this passage? What does the passage mean? Um, two things that I, I just want to bring out of this passage. Number one, Yahweh is actively bringing about the events of history. Yahweh is actively bringing about the events of history. One of the commentaries said it this way. It's not merely that Yahweh can prophesy the future having superior knowledge. It's that Yahweh can announce the future being the one who decides it. Okay. So if there's anything we should take away from this passage, Isaiah is being crystal clear. Yahweh is actively bringing about the events of history. The second thing that we see that I think we can relate to hopefully pretty, probably pretty well is that Israel doubts God because they don't like his message. Israel doubts God because they don't like his message. They don't like what, what God is doing. How do, we, how do we ourselves struggle in these areas? Well, the first, the first way we struggle here um, is we struggle to comprehend sovereignty and foreknowledge. Like, we don't understand that. We think we want to. Um, and, and there's, like, I, I, I'm a, a sci-fi geek. I enjoy science fiction. I like reading science fiction. I like, so, um, you know, we're, do, we're doing foster care right now. Our little, our little baby just doesn't like to sleep without being held. And so we've, <laughs> I've watched a lot of TV lately. <laughs> You know, I, I take I take the first shift. You know, Cash goes to bed around eight or nine, um, and then we switch around one or two. Okay, so from from eight or nine to one or two, um, I'll sit holding the baby or you know keeping him in his rocker seat next to me, um, and and just watching some TV, get caught up on some shows, maybe do some reading. But I went back and watched The Matrix again, um, and and that idea of foreknowledge, right? Like Neo, the, the protagonist, if you haven't seen it, Neo goes into the Oracle who can supposedly see the future. And as they're talking, she just, she just casually says, don't worry about the base. And he turns, he's like, what base? And his arm knocks over the base and it breaks all over the floor. And she's like, I told you, don't worry about it. But what's going to cook you noodle later is, would you have done it if I hadn't said anything? And there's this whole interaction of like, like wow, how does foreknowledge work with with free at like did did she cause that to happen? Did, um, and at the end, um, the agent Smith, like the 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 bad guy, goes to the Oracle um, and he walks in and there's a plate of cookies and he swipes it to the side. He's like, "Did you know I was going to do that? If you did, then you purposely made those cookies. You purposely set them right there just so I could do that." Um, and it's like like how does foreknowledge work? So weird. The movie Arrival. Um, based on a short story, uh, The Story of Our Life, um, which is, the, the short story is fantastic. The movie also is, is fantastic. But it's, it's this exploration of, of what if we didn't comprehend time in a linear fashion? But what if we understood time and we could see it as, as a whole? Like, I know everything that's going, there's, there's no future or past, I'm just experiencing um, and it, it just, it, it makes your head hurt. But it's one of the, the most amazing explanations of, of providence, of, um, of 
like accepting providence the way the main character looks at her whole life and says, yeah, this is how things are supposed to be. Um, all of the, the time travel movies, like, struggle with this. Like, Back to the Future, he goes back. Like, what, what if he had stopped Doc Brown from making the time machine in the first place? Or, you know, he stops his parents initially. Um, he stops his parents from getting together, and so then he's being erased, and he's out of, you know, that whole idea of time and foreknowledge and how does sovereignty work, we struggle to comprehend it. We don't, we don't understand it, and so a lot of times, we just, we just kind of set it aside. We don't want to think about it. Okay, we don't want to think about the fact that God is, is constantly operating to bring about what, like what he decrees. The second thing, um, and we're just like Israel here, okay? It's easy to look at Israel and say, man, guys, why don't you trust God? But at the same time, like we have this history of Israel where God is accomplishing all these things. And yet in our own lives, we struggle to trust God's methods as well. God, I think you should have done it this way. God, I can't believe you treated me like that. Right? I have these experiences in, in, in my own life. Like, I, I can tell you, I remember um, at my last job being fired. And I've talked to a lot of you about the, that experience and what it felt like to all of a sudden be out of a job with four kids. And we had just started foster care. We had two, two extra kids in our house. We had six kids total. And I'm the primary breadwinner. And all of a sudden, unexpectedly, um, I have no job. Okay? This is not how I would have expected God to operate. And at the time, there was a lot of questioning, like, like God, what are you doing? God, don't you know, like, I've, I've served you. I've done my best to follow you. I've been a good employee here. How, how could you let this happen? Right? And then we look back and... Um, and God provided in this miraculous way where I didn't know what was going to come about in the next few months and year. I didn't know that foster care was going to be a lot harder than we thought, and it would not have been possible at the job I was at. I didn't know that the church was going to need me to step into a bigger role at that time. I didn't know any of that. And yet God provided, God did exactly what we needed at that time, even though we looked at it and and. Like, I never, I, I, I told God, like, why are you doing this? I never would have picked that method. I never would have, you know, asked God to, to do this in my life. I remember having a conversation with uh, one, of my, one of the students that, that went to uh, the school I was at. She went on this mission trip to Thailand. And while they were in Thailand, they were having this worship service outside. Um, and all of a sudden, a tree behind them just randomly fell down. Okay, and there's all these stories about, you know, what was it demonic activity? What what was I, I don't know what it was, but a tree that looked fine all of a sudden fell down and it landed on her um, and it actually drove her her face into the ground and it caused significant brain injury where she was hospitalized for a long time in Thailand before they could bring her back and, and continue her hospitalization here. Um, and I got to sit next to her in, at a wedding several years later. And she still struggles with, with concentration. Um, her words are still just a little bit blurred. She has trouble getting them out. Um, and, and what she said is, God has done some incredibly amazing things through that. God has given me a platform to speak to people that I never would have imagined ahead of time. Um, and, and we asked her, like, like, well, you know, don't you think it would have been better if, if that never happened to her? And she said, no. Like, 
I, I don't know why God chose to do it that way, but he's given me something better than I could have ever imagined to do. Right? What, what are some ways, and, and let me ask you this, um, how has God worked in unexpected ways in, in your life? You know, let's, let's take a minute and let's, let's refer to some of the things that God has done um, that, are, that are unexpected. Um, that, that initially we looked at it and we're like, I don't think God should be doing it this way. And then you, you, you realize, because there's some of us that right now are going through difficult things. Okay? Um, I, I, I remember, you know, getting fired. I was, I was on, on one side of, of a story. And I didn't know what the future would be. And now I'm kind of on the other side of it. And looking back, I can see, man, God is faithful through the whole thing. There are some people that are still on this side of a story, that are still going through difficult things. And in, in a little while, we're going to pray for our friend uh, Anthony. So remember, Anthony came and he talked to us about um, immigration and what it was like to live here as an immigrant. Um, and you can go back and listen to that. It was an, an amazing message that, that Anthony brought to us. Um, and Anthony talked about how risky it was to be here on a visa. Um, and what just recently happened was his visa got denied. All right? So now Anthony has been scrambling over the past week, talking to lawyers, seeing what are his options. And he's finally now been, been told um, there, there are no options. You have to leave the country. Um, and so now he, he's trying to get out of the country as quick as he can so that he's not here as, you know, as an undocumented Im- immigrant. Um, he doesn't want to violate the terms of his visa. So he has to leave the country almost immediately. Basically, by March 10th, he's trying to get out um, and then figure out the process of um, possibly a green card application, maybe another visa, but it could be months, years. It could be never. Okay, so he's in a position where his life has just been turned completely upside down. And he probably doesn't understand what God is doing and why. And some of you are in that position where your life has been turned upside down, and you might be thinking, I don't know what God is doing and why. Let's talk through how are some ways that God has worked in unexpected ways in your life so that those people who are on one side of the story can hear stories of God's faithfulness. Why is God doing this through these easy lines of work? 
Year's Day, January 1st, 2018, like, hey, I think if it works out this way, like, here's a map to this next year. Let's do, let's do this. Let's, let, you know, have surgery and get laid off and, and all of this. You know, you, yeah, right? It doesn't work that way. Ten years ago, February, I was happily teaching at a, uh, at a college in Wisconsin, just enjoying my time, living the dream that I wanted to do it. Friday morning, I got a call from my brother, Terry John Junction, and he said, my mom is about to die. She was taken in an ambulance to the hospital, and he said, you need to get back to campus to come to the Wow. So it was... Um, I think it was a Thursday morning, and I was just crushed. I was about to lose my mom. Uh, I went to school, and I got a, a call from the, the dean of students. Came into his office. He said, close the door. And he said, I was one of those. And <laughs> he said, uh, we've decided we're going to let you go. <laughs> and uh, no, short story, I moved. You know, uh, Sue was still back in Wisconsin for a few months until we were able to get things straightened up and stuff. And so we are here because of, of God's plan. And we, we've been here to help Sue with her family, with, with her mom's death, and, and getting involved in good church and good school. It's, it's really cool to be on this side. So many, there's so many more stories. I, I remember, um, like when we talk about not understanding God's plan or even being angry at God. Um, I remember uh, being at a school and I helped out with the debate team. And at the end of the at the end of the season, the parents all got together and gave a, gave us a cash gift, um, and it was like three or four hundred dollars, and it was amazing. So I was like, yes, you know, we could really use this. Um, and the next day, our car got towed because of a mistake that we made we made, and we had to pay $300 to get it out, okay? So um, so we were just just angry, like, what in the world? And, and if we really thought about it, imagine those two events had reversed themselves. Imagine that our car got towed, and we needed $300, and then all of a sudden, $300 unexpectedly showed up. Like, what, what, what would our attitude have been? Like, God, you provided for our needs. But when you reverse them, it's like, God, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you treating us this way? Right? God does things in his own time. And we don't always understand it. We don't get what he's doing. So how is Jesus the hero of all this? The first thing, when we look at these passages, it really sounds like God is, um, God is up above history, like, like kind of this detached, like I'm bringing everything about and I'm, I'm in control and I'm, you know, I'm behind the curtain pulling all the strings, right? Um, but what God did is he inserted himself into history in Christ to accomplish his rescue, okay? Um, so he doesn't sit above history just like pulling all the strings. He actually inserts himself into humanity, enters our space-time continuum, 
like as a human to experience it that way. The second thing, so the second way that Jesus is a hero, um, 2 Corinthians tells us that the power with which God called light out of darkness is the power that, that he uses to turn us from darkness to light, right? So when God here is talking about how great and powerful he is, what he does in the New Testament, he says, I am directing that power on you to draw you to myself. I hope that's encouraging to you. And the last thing, God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God does things that we would not expect, works in ways that we, we wouldn't uh, have asked for in advance. Even in Christ, Jesus himself is one of those foolish things that confounds the wise. Really, you're going to be born in poverty, in a manger to a woman who is still a virgin? You're going to be a, a, a carpenter's son? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? This guy? This is your king? And Jesus came and he, he rescued us all. God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And in Christ, then, we, we are made the beneficiaries of, of all of these promises. Remember, um, God is basically saying, he's, we're, we're called in the benediction to say, um, we want your righteousness to shower down. We want your righteousness to flourish up. We want everything set back the way it will, it's supposed to be, right? And, and while we share these stories of how God took something really difficult and made something really beautiful out of it, um, the reality is that some of you are going to go through difficult things and you're never quite going to see what, what the point was, okay? Um, you're, in, in this life, you're never quite going to understand. Like, there, there are bad things that happen to me, and I look back and I say, I know exactly what God was doing, and, 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 and here's what God was accomplishing, and I really needed it to happen because of this. There's also bad things that happen, and you never get an explanation, Right? I don't want to give you false hope here that just because bad things turn into good for some people, that, that means that it's always going to happen immediately in this life. But the true hope that we have is that Jesus is going to return one day and set everything right. And one day, what does it say? Shower, O heaven, from above. Let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. God, who called light out of darkness, who, who formed the earth, who made those mountains over there, is one day going to return and set everything right the way it's supposed to be. And all of that is based on the sacrifice of the cross. It's based on Christ's death and resurrection and and so today we get to go and be reminded of the fact that even though bad things happen in our lives, God is at work accomplishing something. And if I never know what that is, at least I know that Christ will return and 